0: We're gonna be diving into these last three chapters. Obviously, we'll start in chapter four. And so, let me give you a symbol that I think will best depict the opening verse of chapter four. We're just looking at one verse today, and I think it will weigh on us in a beautiful way, but also a heavy way. I think it's what we need. Um, But let me give you a symbol for that verse. All right, here it is. It's the symbol for congruency. Now, if you're a mathematician or some type of engineer, you probably figured that out by now. I had to look it up. I'm not a mathematician. I'm a word guy. This is a symbol for congruency. And specifically, it means when geographical shapes match. It's a mathematical symbol. And so what it's symbolizing is that there are two things and they are coordinating. They're, they're Matching, they're in keeping with one another, they're congruent, and this is a terrific symbol for Ephesians 4 1. In fact, we'll have a take home truth later, but we could easily substitute a take home symbol this week. So, either remember this or the take home truth or the verse. Either way, here's what we're looking at this morning it's all wrapped up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Will you read this verse out loud with me? And then we'll dive into it, we'll investigate it, unpack it, focus on it, we'll pick it apart. We'll use our lab and just kind of break down all that this verse contains, or at least a good bit of it, to help us understand the, the, the incredible um, calling that God's given us. Here's the verse, Ephesians 4, one together, church. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A singular verse and if you would, join me in the lab. Take your study guide, your Bible, some notepaper, grab a pen. And let's just kind of break this verse down and understand really what's Paul, or what Paul is saying to us so we can leave with um, uh, clarity. He, he does begin in verse 1. Notice, if you would, that verse 1 is where we're looking today. And I would say that verse 1 is just the what. Because verses 2 and 3 give us the how and the why. We'll get to that next week. But it's important to understand this umbrella kind of overarching statement that Paul makes here in verse 1. And the what that he's driving at. The what that he is calling us to is really seen in the simple phrase, walk in a manner worthy. In the original, it's just two words. In fact, not just the verb, it's also the adverb. The verb would be walk, which would be an action, um, present tense verb, be doing this. The translations here in the ESV is walk in a manner worthy, good translation. But really, the next word is the adverb, worthily. So Paul is saying walk in a manner worthily or walk in a, in a way that's, that's um. um corresponding to, equal to. In fact, the word worthy here is the word axios, and it simply means equal weight. In fact, here's a word you could use for the word worthy. Watch this, congruent. It means, and picture in your mind a scale that this side matches this side, that there is balance Here's some other words you could use to define this word worthily, the way in which we're to walk. You could use the word suitably, correspondingly, um, properly, in keeping with, consistently, fittingly. These are all words that simply describe the way in which we're to walk. Now, as you think about the word worthily or the adverb worthily here, Here's a couple of verses where it's also used that I think will help you understand more about what it means. One's a negative use of the word. One's a positive use of the word. Notice how this word's used, and I, when I say negatively, he's showing how something doesn't match up is what I mean. Romans 8:18. 8, Here's the same word, but notice what he says in this verse. He said, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. He's saying, these things don't match up. Your suffering and the future glory, they're not, they're not comparable. They don't correspond. They don't fit. They're not suitable. Are you, are you tracking with me? Yes. They, they don't compare. So he's using the same word, but showing that there's a lack of correspondence. Here's how he used it in Colossians 1.10. He said, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord... So here he's saying your walk should be corresponding to the Lord and pleasing to him. So here he's saying this should match. It should fit. In other words, there should be equal weight. This is the the, the real succinct meaning of the word worthy in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. So let's go back to our lab. Let's ask ourselves this question. What should it correspond to? Like if it's equal weight, if we're to walk or to live or to conduct ourselves in a manner that's of equal weight, what is it equal to? What should it match? What should it correspond to? Well, let's keep our nose in the book. The text always answers its questions. He says here we're to walk with equal weight or in a fitting manner or in a worthy fashion to the calling to which you have been called. Now, some see the word calling here as referring to salvation. Some see the word calling here as perhaps things after salvation, like maybe a specific ministry or even a vocation. I think it's neither of those exclusively. I think what Paul is doing in this opening verse to the last section, which is very practical, is he's looking back to chapters 1 through 3 and saying, in light of everything that God has called you to, Walk in a manner that's, that matches that. In fact, let me just prove this to you. The word called here at the end of verse one, it's a passive tense word. He's really saying walk in a manner that matches what God has said about you. See, often we say this, watch this. We, we say, man, your, your walk should match your talk. But that's a little textually Incomplete because we should say your walk should match God's talk. Because what he's referring to here is really all that God has said is your reality. All that God has said about you, chapters one through three, all that he's done for you in Christ, that's what you've been called to in repentance and faith and because of your belief. Here's a few of those things. I've just mentioned them in the previous series, of course, 10 or 11 of those. Here's a brief summary. He's called us into the blessings of salvation with all of its wonderful hope. He's united us with Christ in his resurrection and exaltation so that now we actually share in his rule over the new creation and will in the future. We have been reconciled among Jews and Gentiles so that his death has killed hostility and has created one new humanity. We've become members of God's household, the new temple of the Lord. We have freedom and access to the Father by one spirit. We've been divinely ordained to have a role in God's purposes for the entire cosmos. That's what God has done for you in Christ. That's what he's called you to. And he's saying in this verse, your life should match that. How you live and conduct yourself should have equal weight with that. In plain terms, Paul is calling for no hypocrisy. We get that word, don't we? He's, he's calling for no discrepancy between what God says we are, what he has called us to, this calling to which we've been called, and then the way we conduct our life. No hypocrisy. We're not wearing a mask to pretend we're something when we're really not. We're not trying to cover. We're not putting on a show We want consistency. Watch the words here. We want congruency. We want fittingness, correspondence between who God says we are and how we live. That's what it means to walk in a worthy manner. And that's what you and I have been called to as God's people. To walk with no discrepancy, no inconsistency, but with equal weight, So let's just kind of put this into a, uh, oh, let me just mention this one more thing before we mention our take home truth. I think Paul actually models this in the verse. Would you just underline one more phrase? He kind of refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. Like you ever thought like, why does he do that here? Is it like, is he playing the martyr's card? Is he just trying to gain some extra attention? Is he trying to elevate himself? No, I think here Paul is actually showing that this is what his life has done. He is living out what God said would be true about him. If you read Paul's conversion in Acts, God said to Paul, I will show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. I mean, imagine that at your job interview. You kind of lay out your job profile, your job description. Here's what's ahead. And it's like, oh, you got lots of suffering ahead. Well, now Paul's in prison. He's experienced many hardships. Uh, And Paul's just saying, by the way, My life in its conduct has lived out what God said was my calling. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. It's true about me. And I'm urging you to live in the same way where there's an equal weight between what God says about you and how you actually live your life. And so our take home truth really is quite simple. Remember, you could have a take home symbol as well. Okay. But here's our, our simple take home truth to go along with the verse today. That walking worthy means living with equal weight between my calling in Christ and my conduct for Christ. It means we're not gonna live with hypocrisy or pretense. We're not gonna have two-facedness. There's no duplicity. Instead, there's congruency, consistency. This is what it means to walk Worthily. So will you read the take home truth with me? Quite simple. Just tuck it in your pocket as well as your verse for this week as well as the symbol. Here we go together. Ready church? Walking worthy means living with equal weight between my calling in Christ and my conduct for Christ. This is what Paul urged them towards. So let's go back to our lab. Look at this final word here in this verse. See the word Urge. When you read that verse, understand something. Paul in no ways asking for permission, (laughs) all right? I mean, this this is your pastoral plea here. This is Paul in the face of these believers. This is Paul nose to nose. Yes, kindly and compassionately, but clearly... Calling them. The word here is parakaleo. It means to come alongside to call. Paul's walking this direction. He's wanting, hey guys, join me. Come on. He's exhorting. Some translations say, I beseech you. Some use the word I plead. I mean, there's nothing like in this word that says Paul's just having a second thought. Or Paul's kind of like, if I get around to it, I might throw a memo your way. He's not leaving a post-it note to remind them. Paul is in their face saying, I'm urging you. I'm pleading with you live with equal weight. See all that God has done for you, all that he says is true about you because of Christ and live up to that. That's what it means to walk in a worthy manner. As I thought about this and my own pastoral plea to you today, I wanna I want to echo this with Paul. I wanna bring this before you, I wanna put this in your lap. I want you to see this in God's word. I want you to, be, to feel compelled, exhorted. I want you to feel appropriately pressed on to address areas and issues of hypocrisy and pretense and duplicity. And ask yourself, am I living a life that is consistent where there's no discrepancy, one of congruence between what God says about me and then what my actions show? Do my life and my lips match? I want you to think about this, okay? And as I thought about it and meditated upon it, the first question that came to my mind as a shepherd among this flock and as a member of this flock was this question. So what would be a next step? Like, like how, how do I begin to approach this? Like, what's a, a first thing to do? And the Holy Spirit, again, just kept my nose in the book and delightfully showed me the second word in the verse, which is the answer to the question. Like, what, what do we do next with this? The Bible always answers its own questions. And I want you to see the second word in this verse. It's the word, therefore, do you see it? Circle it multiple times, star it, put exclamation points by it. Because within this word, we understand our next step. Let me explain. You see, the word therefore looks two ways. It looks back to all the, and I'll be, I'm going to be grammatical with you for a moment. It looks back, let me go this down here because you can't really see it on there. We'll cross that out. It looks back to all the indicatives of chapters one through three. Now, an indicative is a grammatical term indicating a sentence or a phrase or a word that simply states a reality. It is what is. Are you tracking with me? That's an indicative. And chapters one through three are full of those. There are, admittedly, a couple of imperatives in those chapters. But the bulk of the imperatives follow. So it therefore looks forward to the imperatives in four through six. So we would say one through three are the indicatives, four through six are the imperatives. And therefore is the bridge word between the two. Paul is saying, in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of this incredible calling of his placement of you in Christ and of his uh, killing of hostility and all these things we mentioned, in light of everything that God has done for you, Now go and do this for God. And most of the imperatives are in four through six. Spiritual warfare, marriage, employment, thanksgiving, worship, spiritual gifts. You'll see as we unfold these chapters. It's an amazing, we'll use the word list of how we're to live. But here's the problem. A lot of people love to embrace four through six without one through three. And so it's like trying to run your automobile without the right kind of fuel in the tank. So you're embracing a life of imperatives without a foundation of indicatives. You're pursuing a life of obedience, but you're running on empty. And what happens is the treadmill, I mean, it just gets harder and harder you grow weary and bitter it's because your tank is empty your foundation isn't solid so you say Todd how does that answer the question about what's next here's what's next ask God to revive your heart about all that he's done for you in Christ in other words, leave and be done with gospel boredom. That's where a lot of Christians are. You're, and I'll say you are. I know it's not every person here, but allow me some room to be pastorally pleading with you. Let me get, use the word urge for a bit. Let me kind of get in front of your face. Let me go nose to nose with you. There are many people who are just no longer enamored with the gospel. They they just find it like another thing they know. That that Christ came in human flesh and willingly gave his life as a sacrifice, satisfying all of God's wrath against their sin and then being raised from the dead by the Father as proof that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. That's like, oh yeah, and it also, also is gonna rain next Thursday. Like, How are those those things equal? They're not. One is of incredibly, um, it's it's of massive more importance. But we've come to the place in the American church, sadly, where our kids' ball games and our wardrobe and our address and our IRA and our retirement and whatever, throw all your hobbies in that list. It's like on the same plane as the gospel. And so we have relegated the gospel to this, this area. that like, hey, it's, it's, it's good information. I'm glad it happened. And hey, the Braves won last night too. Are you tracking with me? And we wonder why the church is impotent and weak. It's because we don't see Christ as the priceless Treasure that we would sell everything for. We don't value him as the rescue of our life. Without, if it weren't for him, we would be in hell. We just kind of placing on the list of other things we do. We go to church, and the truth is, these kinds of people—they actually can recite the gospel to you. They can sing the gospel with you. They go to your small group, but there's nothing about the gospel that excites them, nothing about the gospel that overwhelms them. They're no longer brought to tears by the gospel. All that God has done for them in Christ just seems like, oh, I'm glad it happened. If I'm describing you, pray this morning for God to revive your heart because you're running on empty. You're trying to live a life of imperatives without a foundation of indicatives. And I, by God's grace, refuse to be a pastor who brings you more things to add to your to-do list. I wanna bring you one thing to put on your to-done list that God has reconciled to you, reconciled you to himself through Christ, his son. Amen, church? And everything's been accomplished. Christ said, it is finished. The father raising from the dead. So all the gas you need for your automobile is found at the cross. And that's what Paul describes in Ephesians 1 through 3. And so he's saying in Ephesians 4, 1, therefore, in other words, here's the bridge to all that you're gonna be called to do as a new follower of Christ. All these things that, that you'll need to be distinctly different in. Man, you'll find the energy and power and fuel for them in all that Christ has done. So I'm here this morning not giving you another to-do list or six steps to this or four to that. I'm just saying, man, gaze upon Jesus and the cross. Man, fill your tank at Calvary. Tether your life to Jesus and his work for you. You'll find all the fuel you'll need for every bit of the imperatives. You know, 1 John 3, 1 has a similar structure. Not to bring another text into our text, but I read this verse just last night and I was struck by how it's structured the same way. John says this, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You can sense John's amazement, can you? Like, wow, who does this kinds of thing, right? And then he says, if you have this kind of love, you purify yourself. John doesn't start out by saying, hey, hey Tom, get to work purifying yourself. He says, have you you beheld God's love for us? Have you looked at the cross? Have you looked at the other worldly type of love that God has for us? When you do, you'll purify yourself. And this is what Paul says here. When you look at all the indicatives, the statements of reality, of what God has done for his people in Christ, you'll have all the fuel you'll need for a life of imperatives. The problem is we embrace the imperatives without the indicatives. And I'm just, I'm here this morning to beseech you and plead with you and to urge you, don't live life without the indicatives. Yes, walk in a manner worthy of the calling Live consistently in congruence, yes, no hypocrisy, amen. But how does that occur? Where's the fuel for that? It's all rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we will continue to celebrate the gospel week in, week out, day in, day out. The truth is, to be just pastorally frank with you, we really don't have a walking problem. That's the word used here, right? To walk in a manner worthy. And we've talked about hypocrisy and living consistently. but, But at a fundamental level, we don't have a walking problem. I think this verse would show us all because of the word, therefore, we have a worshiping problem. We too easily forget what God has done for us. So I wanna call you to seeing Jesus as he truly is, the priceless treasure of your life. I wanna call you to being overwhelmed with the cross, to being left speechless by the gospel, to being confounded at all that God has done, to being unable to actually explain it. Though In your head, you understand it and you can technically and theologically describe it. You still are at a loss for words. So maybe to help you with this, you're gonna read Romans 1 through 11 every day for 30 days. That'd be kind of like a spiritual whole 30, you know? You're just gonna cleanse yourself of all the Fox News, CNN, Spotify playlists, all these things that just fill your mind with things that probably just kind of distract you and detour you, detour you. And you're just gonna, man, cleanse. So Romans 1 to 11, once a day at least for 30 days. You talk about seeing all that God has done for us in Christ and being overwhelmed and confounded? Try that. Maybe you'll pick up the book by Paul Tripp. The title is Awe, that's all it's called. He addresses this problem and in a much lengthier fashion, helps the church fall in love again with the gospel to the place where they are speechless and overwhelmed with the love of God in Christ for sinners. Maybe you'll ask Taylor for A playlist of songs that is that's theologically and and, uh, biblically just rich in regards to salvation and the cross and what God has done for us and you'll just let those be on repeat in your ears, 30 days again, just that spiritual kind of whole 30 diet for a bit see me, I'll give you some of the ones that I listen to maybe you want to pick up our recommended resource for theology. It's Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You can get it at Amazon. And you'll take the chapter on the doctrine of salvation and you'll just read it. When you get done, you'll be like, wow, God did all of that. All of that's in the Bible? And you'll be just astounded at God's redemptive plan. You see, that's what I'm asking for. And when that occurs in you, when that occurs in me, guess what will happen? You will walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And consistency and no discrepancy and no hypocrisy, that will be the the general demeanor of your Christian life. Not because you forced it or manufactured it, Because God's spirit bore it in you. Again, God's word being used by God's spirit to help God's people. And so I just, this morning, want to plead with you and echo the Apostle Paul and ask you to join me in living a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. I think this is what happened to Charles... Wesley. He was an old circuit riding preacher in the 1700s. You've heard of him, I'm sure. His brother John was born again just after he was saved. And together they wrote hundreds if not thousands of songs. Many of them describing their amazement at God's work in salvation. Here's one that I've been using the last couple of days. In fact, last night as me and Julie were just sitting in bed talking, we asked Siri to play this song on our bedroom speaker and we turned it up extra loud. Now, I like the acapella version. You pick the version you like. But back in the 1700s, just a few days after he was born again, Charles Wesley wrote the song, And Can It Be? Now, we don't speak in that way right now. We would say, how can it be? But several hundred years ago, Old English, They would ask, and can it be? And he was using that just days after his conversion to describe his utter amazement that God would act on his behalf and draw him to himself and save him. Listen to these beautiful words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? I mean, just in that first phrase of that poem, you can kind of sense his utter astonishment that he would benefit from Christ's sacrifice. Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? And then this refrain throughout the poem. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's the attitude I want. That I'll never get over that God would send Jesus to die for me. When that indicative forms the foundation for your life, the imperatives will flow. He continues by writing this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.